you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, let me give you a few just pastoral notes that I feel compelled to say. One is, welcome Jen and Venice. I haven't seen you guys in a while, so good to see you all uh, back here in town. Um, second thing is, is that me? Second thing was uh, Beatrice's birthday is this week. Is that correct? Her first birthday. Um, Beatrice is in the hallway, I think, because she's making noise as she likes to do on Sundays. And I just wanted to affirm, hey, we got lots of kids and just reiterate, as we all know, that um, we are fine with the noise that the kids make. And it's part of where we're at in this season of having everyone together. So um, just encourage you as parents, remember that, hey, we're all in this together and, and nobody's judging you if your kid drops their toys or makes a little extra noise. Um, speaking of kids, uh, my wife is due any day. And so um, just so you know what's going on, this is our last sermon in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. I told her if you could not have the baby until after this Sunday, that would be perfect. And so thank you, Andrea. Uh, for the next five Sundays, I will not be here. Uh, I will be here, but I will not be here in the pulpit preaching. Uh, we're going to be looking through us doing a study through the book of Esther. And so that's going to be encouraging. And we've got five different uh, guys that are going to come up here and preach through the book of Esther. So I encourage you to be a part of that. Uh, if you want to read through Esther, it'd be a great book to read through, uh, especially with your kids. It's a great story. Um, kids, if you are able to read, you could start this week and read through the book of Esther and get a feel for what that story is all about. Um, but looking forward to that. And Joel will kick us off next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, in Esther 1 and 2. If you'd rather just read the part that we're going to cover, uh, we'll cover Esther 1 and 2 next Sunday. But I'm looking forward to that. Um, I think that's all that I have as far as those little housekeeping notes. And hopefully you're, you made it to Matthew 7. Uh, we'll be in Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29, as well as Matthew 8, verse 1. And also just considering the sermon as a whole, so we'll be thinking about a lot, uh, Matthew 5 through 7 as a whole as well. Do you have any enduring memories of maybe your response to a, a movie or to a book or maybe even to a sermon when it was all over? Uh, a time when you saw something or read something or heard something, and it sort of just moved you in a unique way. Uh, I, remember where, I remember where I was when I finished the book, The Shadow of the Almighty, which told the story of the missionary martyr, Jim Elliott. And I remember uh, it closes with his death, and I felt like I had lost a friend. It was just such a, a moving story. I also have a distinct memory of being in Moody Church in Chicago during Founders Week and hearing a sermon on racial, recon ra racial reconciliation that was unlike anything I'd ever heard before in all the sermons I'd heard in my entire life uh, and being filled with sort of this desire to just walk in the, the radical love and holiness of the gospel. Maybe you have a similar experience. Last week, we considered the parable of the wise and the foolish builders, and we read the, the final words of the Sermon on the Mount proper, the words that Jesus speaks. However, those are not the, the final words of Matthew chapter 7. Uh, in verse 28, Matthew returns as the narrator of his gospel, and he tells us the crowd responded to everything that Jesus had just said in chapters 5 through 7. And this is what Matthew writes in Matthew 7, 
verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And then the first verse of chapter 8 tells us, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. With these words, we're taken back to the beginning of the sermon where Matthew told us that Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, he began to teach his disciples. We said that, that this description purposely recalled to mind Moses, Moses who went up Mount Sinai to receive the law of God for the people of God. And so too, Jesus was sitting down on this mountaintop to lay out for his followers and for anyone within earshot just exactly what his kingdom would look like and who would be welcomed into it. And now at the end of the sermon, we're told that the, the peop, what the people thought of what Jesus had just said. Matthew tells us that the general reaction was this, astonishment. The disciples and the crowd alike were amazed. And their amazement was primarily because, we're told, of the authority with which Jesus spoke. Rather than, than um, stating up front our, our big idea, I want to sort of move through uh, towards our big idea this afternoon. So if you're not hearing that up front, it's because we're going to move towards it. But, and, and as we do, the first thing I want to think about is Jesus's authority is astonishing. Jesus's authority is astonishing. As we have witnessed over the weeks and months of studying the sermon together, the, the words of Jesus are so clear and so incisive into our souls. Jesus says, means what he says, and he says what he means. Uh, some of his wisdom at times is a little bit difficult to specifically apply, but there, at the same time, there can be little uncertainty about what Jesus wants us as his followers to do. In our day, we don't often speak with that kind of authority. And if we do offer some sort of unequivocal truth claim about something going on in our world, we're usually proven wrong pretty quickly. But Jesus spoke with self-confident clarity. And that self-confident clarity is arresting in any culture or any society in any time period. It wasn't just the, the authoritative things that Jesus said that astonished the crowd, though. But maybe more importantly, it was the source of his authority. The crowd was amazed because Jesus was making bold claims and he was giving strong commands and he was doing it on his own authority. This was unlike the other teachers of his day, we're told. Unlike the scribes whose teachings were made up with various quotations from numberless rabbis and, and teachers. It was unlike the Pharisees who just looked at the law and mined out the details and at times found the most minimal application that they could of that law. His teaching was even unlike the prophets because Jesus never used the, that well-known phrase that the prophets always said. What do they always say? Thus says the Lord. But what did Jesus say? He said, truly, truly, I say to you. He didn't draw his authority from outside of himself. He was the authority. And of course, he speaks with such authority on the things of God and on God's, of God's kingdom because he is God. We can all agree with most of the world that, that Jesus is a great teacher, but he, he is more than that. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah come to rescue his people and bring them into his kingdom. He's the Lord over all. He's the Savior of the world. He's the only Son of God. He's God in human flesh. 
whether, whether they or whether we accept that or not, that's what's true. And because of who he is, he can boldly claim that to reject the narrow path that he's laid out or to build our lives on any other foundation than what he has said is to set our souls up for destruction. Matthew, in contrasting Jesus with the teachers of the day, is actually getting ready for the conflict that's going to come throughout his gospel, especially in the Passion Week. It was Jesus' self-proclaimed authority as Lord in Christ, his assertion that he was sent from God, that he was the Son of God, that led the religious authorities of his day to crucify him. I think it would be an interesting study to look at authority in Matthew's gospel. I didn't get a chance to do it, but as I was meditating on that word, you think about even how the gospel ends. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Interesting study, maybe. But we might ask at the end of this study of the Sermon on the Mount, how, how could you crucify a man who spoke words like the ones that we find in the Sermon on the Mount? How could you be so angry with him and his authority? This teaching of Jesus is regarded by many, not just within the church, but outside the church as one of the greatest statements of true morality and virtue in all of history. The golden rule alone in Matthew 7, 12 is known around the world and through the centuries as the simplest and clearest summary of how to bring joy and life into our world and into our personal lives. We're going to come back to this idea of authority, but as we think about the sermon as a whole, think with me on the beauty of Jesus's words and the fact that Jesus's teaching is comprehensive. We've said that Jesus's authority is astounding. Let's think about the fact that Jesus's teaching, specifically here in the Sermon on the Mount, is comprehensive. Jesus's teaching is comprehensive. Now, as I say that, we should be clear that the Sermon on the Mount is just one part of the revelation that's given to us in, in the Scriptures. In fact, it's, it's only the first of five blocks of teaching that are found in Matthew's gospel alone. So the, the way of living in God's kingdom is more than simply these three chapters. But it is certainly not less than these three chapters. The, the depth of this teaching is bottomless. And even after spending, we've spent over 30 Sundays meditating on these words, I think we could return back to the beginning and go through it again and find plenty more to think through and plenty of more ways that we haven't applied it well. The comprehensiveness of, of these words is found in the way that, that, that they speak to so many truths that are at the core of what it means to be women and men created in the image of God. Reflecting on the, the whole sermon, think with me about four of the ways that the sermon gives us a comprehensive, a comprehensive understanding of ourselves and of the world that God has made. First, Think about the longing for flourishing and wholeness. The longing for flourishing and wholeness. If you've been with us, hopefully those words flourishing and wholeness ring true and, and, and feel familiar to you. As Jesus began the sermon with the Beatitudes, he, he tapped into a God-giving longing that we all have in our lives. The longing to be happy. The longing to be blessed. Our desire to flourish and thrive personally, professionally, in our families, in all our relationships. Don't you want to be happy? Don't you want to flourish? Jesus taps into that. We try to tap into that in our mission statement for our Coffee ESL ministry. This is the, the mission statement for that ministry. It says, at Coffee, for the glory of God and the sake of the gospel, we seek to teach English with excellence so newcomers are empowered to successfully use the language, navigate the culture, and flourish, we use that word, flourish on a new path in this new place. 
refugees and immigrants, maybe uniquely, but like all of us, desire to thrive in life. And we know that speaking English is vital to thriving and flourishing here in the U.S., and so we want to teach English. But we also know that speaking a language and navigating a culture are not all that we need to fully thrive in life. And so we long to introduce the learners that come to coffee up to the wonder of the gospel and the ways of God's kingdom, because that's what leads to true flourishing, to blessedness and happiness that endures beyond this life, beyond this culture, into the eternal kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about. That, that flourishing is described in these chapters. And we need Jesus in his heavenly wisdom to tell us what flourishing looks like. You know why? Because it often goes against what we naturally desire or what our culture tells us is flourishing. We need Jesus to tell us that it is the poor in spirit. It's those who mourn. It's the meek the hungry and the thirsty, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and even the persecuted that truly flourish in his kingdom. We need to be reminded of the futility and fading nature of the treasures of this world so that we will seek not the praise of others or the wealth of this earth, but rather that we will look for treasures in heaven that cannot fade. We need to be called down the narrow path knowing that it leads to life. We need Jesus to make clear the unexpected foundation of flourishing in his kingdom. Jesus taps not only into our desire for flourishing, but also the new longing for wholeness and for all of life devotion that, that he gives to his followers through faith. In those key verses in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, we saw that Jesus introduces the concept of this greater righteousness of the kingdom, a righteousness that is more than simply surface actions that are disconnected from our hearts. Yes, our, our sinfulness wants to hide in the shadows, but our new hearts given to us by Jesus desire to walk by the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We want to obey Jesus inwardly and outwardly. We want to bear the fruit of the Spirit. We long to not live a double life of, of hypocrisy. We don't want to relegate our spirituality or our Christianity to one portion of our life and then ignore it in every other area. We want the wholeness of, and the completeness that this sermon is calling us to. Chapter 5 especially, I think, helps us to think about this greater righteousness and, and reveals that the, the, this is, the righteousness is greater, not because we do more righteous deeds than the Pharisees or anyone else, but because this righteousness is deeper, because it goes to our hearts. Our hearts are transformed by the grace of God through faith in Jesus, who fulfilled the law in his life and in his death, so that we might give our full attention to it by delighting in Christ's commands, by hungering and thirsting for righteousness, by doing good works that bring glory to our Father in heaven, by loving our neighbor as ourselves, by loving our enemies. And so we've seen that this sermon taps into this longing that we have for flourishing and a longing that Christ gives us for wholeness and for running away from hypocrisy. But the sermon is also realistically, secondly, in the way that it speaks about the reality of suffering and pain. The reality of suffering and pain. Back to the, those Beatitudes, they're, they're so striking because we realize that they are not calling us away from the pain of life, but they are teaching us that joy and life are found in the midst of hungering and thirsting and persecution and the like. There is a, a self-denial at the heart of living in the ways of the kingdom. 
as we're called not to live for ourselves, but for the glory of God and for the good of others. We avoid earthly praise for our righteous acts, and we pursue the reward of our Father in heaven. We, we shun the pleasure of riches in, in favor of heavenly treasures, trusting that our Father will care for everything. I find the realism of Jesus refreshing in a world that often tries to hide reality in the fine print. Just wants to tell you everything's going to be okay. It's good to know that the path of living in the wholeness of the kingdom is difficult, that it's narrow. It's, it's good that Jesus tells us that. It's good to know that it's hard, but also that it leads to life. To rephrase C.S. Lewis's comment on Aslan, is living as kingdom people in a sinful world safe? Of course it isn't safe. Who said anything about safe? But it's good. It's the true kingdom. We all face suffering and pain on the path of flourishing and wholeness. That's a reality Jesus speaks of. But we also see that these words of Jesus speak to the promise of reward and judgment. That's the third thing that we find in the sermon, the promise of reward and judgment. This promise reminds us that the, the kingdom is here and now, but not fully, that, that there is an already and a not yet to what Jesus describes here. And that includes this promise of reward and judgment. So, so we know that there is a reward for walking in the wisdom of Jesus some of which we will know in this life right now, but the greatest of which we will know only in the future fullness of the kingdom. And, and in the same way, there is a judgment for rejecting the true righteousness of the kingdom and choosing to live in hypocrisy and false righteousness. Some of that is found here in the present, some of that judgment, and, some of, and most of it will be fully felt when Jesus, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, says to those who thought that they knew him, I never knew you. The promise of reward and judgment reminds us that we are looking to a day when the reality of suffering and pain is no more. The sermon is meant to be walked in now, and we strive to live kingdom lives every day. But this painting of true life as children of God ultimately points to a future reality. And while we pursue flourishing and fullness here and now, and we taste it, we know that the fullness of this reality will only be ours when the kingdom comes in its fullness, when, the, when the, the new heavens and the new earth arrive, when we are made new, when sin and death are judged and the reward of eternal life is fully realized. We are made for something greater than this broken world. And we are homesick for our true home. But to draw that illustration out, we also live in houses here and now. And we try to make them places of warmth and welcome. We try to make them outposts or pockets of kingdom blessing. Which leads to the, the fourth and the final theme of this sermon that I want to mention. Which is this, the desire to bring goodness and beauty into the world. The desire to bring goodness and beauty into the world. I think that's part of God's image in us and part of what he is building in us as followers of Jesus. Right after the Beatitudes, you remember in the introduction, Jesus tells we who are followers that, of, of him that we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. That our devotion to Jesus is not something that is purely internal. 
that it, it's not something that's cut off from the, the world at large, but that we are to be those who bring the beautiful light of the gospel into this dark and dismal world. Again, to go back that to that illustration of a home here and now, we as, as followers of Jesus, we kind of function like interior designers. And we want to create spaces with our lives that reflect the beauty of the kingdom that our hearts are made for. Living in wholeness, living in full devotion to the way of Jesus is how we do that. Which is why so much of Jesus' teaching here instructs us on how to do to others what we would have them do to us. He rebukes the thought of doing our, our private righteousness before others, that that makes us holy. And he instead calls us to radical and often hidden ways of loving our neighbors and even our enemies. Ways of loving that are seen in the way that we speak to others. How we look at them, whether with lust or with kindness. We are to be people of our word. We are to be people who don't retaliate. People who love their enemies. People who give to the poor and needy. People who freely forgive. People who graciously correct. That's goodness and beauty in this world. And it's a vision of God's kingdom. And it's a vision that's not individualistic, but it's corporate. And therefore, it's, it's world-influencing such that people will see our good deeds, will see the light of the gospel working in the followers of Jesus from the inside out, and they will be led to glorify our Father in heaven. They will see us in, in us, in, they will see the, the light of the gospel in us individually, in our families, in our church, and they will long to be children of our Father in heaven. That relationship of children to a father may be the, the key to all of the, the sermon. At least I've found it to be particularly arresting. This, this image of our dependence on him and of his affection for us is so core. It's at the center of the sermon. Because at the center of the sermon, what do we find? We find the Lord's Prayer. A prayer to our Father in heaven. A prayer that reminds us that our core identity is that we are children of God. And that we live out the, real, the reality of the kingdom in dependence on Him. Asking that He would empower us to become who we already are through repentance and faith. That He would accomplish His will and His ways through us. Well, that's a big broad sweep of the whole sermon. So if you were lost in the midst of that, you can come back now. And, and let's bring together the, the comprehensiveness of Jesus's teaching here in the sermon with, with the authority of Jesus's words and the authority he claims in speaking these things. And as we bring those things together, this, this comprehensive picture of, of who we are to be as God's kingdom people and the authority of Jesus, there's an underlying truth that stands out and it's this. It is futile, it is worthless to seek after any of these things apart from devotion to and submission to Jesus. It is worthless to try to, to, to seek after any of these things apart from devotion and submission to Jesus. It's worthless to try to keep the Sermon on the Mount and not submit to Christ as Lord. It is futile to seek flourishing and wholeness, to seek meaning out of suffering and pain, to seek reward or judgment, to seek goodness and beauty outside of devotion to Jesus. Jesus, as the great teacher and prophet, cannot be separated from Jesus, the Savior and Lord. 
We can't separate the words of Jesus from Jesus who said that he was the son of God and that he's the only way back to the father. Yet again, C.S. Lewis has something good to say to us. And you all know the quote that I'm going to quote. This is what Lewis writes. I'm trying here to prevent, and this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. I find that to just put a bow on the Sermon on the Mount for me. The, the call then that, that I would give to you that I think just sort of summarizes what these final verses of Matthew 7 and what the sermon as a whole says, this is my big idea for you. Joyfully submit to the authority of King Jesus. Joyfully submit to the authority of King Jesus and live by faith as true children of the Father. Joyfully submit to the authority of King Jesus. I want to get that kingdom picture in there. But I got to have that father picture in there too. And secondly, live by faith as true children of the Father. Life in the kingdom begins when we admit how far short of the kingdom and of God's glory we fall on our own. When we admit our sin and our lack of wholeness and our inability to walk in God's ways. And we, then we, we trust that Jesus has paid the price for our failures through his death. And he invites us into flourishing through his resurrection life. And as God's children, by faith in Jesus, we now joyfully submit to his authority. To his authority to reveal the way of true flourishing. To his authority to judge. His authority to reward. His authority to say what is good and what is bad. And having been made by Jesus, made new by Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ, then my question is, will you and I submit to the authority of Jesus? And will we live by faith as true children of the Father? Will we walk in the ways of the kingdom that Jesus has described here? If we will, if we will submit to Christ as King, if we will live as children of the Father, then the result will be flourishing. It will be wholeness of life. It will be joy in this life and in the one to come. Not devoid of any pain or suffering, but joy and flourishing and wholeness in the midst of it all. Final thought. In the Sermon on the Mount, I think we could say that Jesus is in fact preaching himself. He is telling us what the, what the kingdom, what, what, what life in his kingdom should look like. And then what he does in the rest of the Gospels and the rest of what we know about who he is, is that he shows us in his life what he's been talking about. He displays a life of flourishing in the midst of pain and suffering and rejection. He shows us a life of wholeness and true righteousness in the midst of hypocrisy around him. 
He shows us what it looks like to live for the reward of, of the Father more than the riches of this world, whether they be the, the praises of people or the, or the possessions that we might have. He makes it clear what God judges and what God rewards. And Jesus has brought more goodness and beauty into this world than we could ever imagine. May we, by his strength and in submission to his will, live as children of the Father. And may God be glorified in us as he was in his Son. May we joyfully submit to the authority of King Jesus and live by faith as true children of the Father. I pray that it would be true of us in what it says in Matthew 8.1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. That's what it means. That's the response. In, in one way, as I can say, joyfully submit to the authority of King Jesus and live by faith as true children of the Father. You know what else I could say? Follow Jesus. Follow him in these ways that he's called us into. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word. And then I'll, I'll pray and we'll sing a song together. Father, as we come to the end of this series, we, we do say what a great teacher you are. But more than that, we say what a great Savior and Lord you are. What a great God and Father you are. Lord, help us to live in submission to King Jesus. Help us to live as true children of the Father. Help us to follow you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.